2: From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's The Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hillman. Joining me in studio this week, from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger, And from Motley Fool, deep value, Ron Gross. Good to see hey, you, as hey, always, hey, gentlemen. Hey. We've got the latest on tech, travel, insurance, and more. We will take a closer look at the rise of activist shareholders, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the growing battle between Apple and the federal government. At the request of the FBI, a federal judge has ordered Apple to provide new software to help the FBI unlock the encrypted iPhone of one of the killers in the recent shootings in San Bernardino, California. CEO Tim Cook says the FBI's request is unprecedented and wrote an open letter to customers saying that Apple's opposition is not something the company takes lightly, but they do believe this is an overreach by the U.S. government. And Ron Gross, I'll just start with you. This is. This is really tough because when you step back and look at it both the FBI and Apple are doing what they are supposed to be doing I yeah I agree it's very
0: tough and and I do see both sides of this I, I don't see it as being cut 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 and dry and, and and I realize it's a slippery slope from Apple's perspective that they they really don't want to go down. I, I do believe, I, th- I think I believe, that there should be a way for Apple to comply in this one particular case without putting all of our civil, civil liberties at risk. Uh, that might be naive. Again, the slippery slope might might come into play here. But I think they should be able to take care of that. And, and I actually think the fact that we're operating under a, a, a law written in 1789, the the All-Writs Act here may mean that it's time to kind of come up with some new laws to uh, to address the world we live in now. There, there weren't smartphones back then? <laughs> you got to pivot. I, and, and probably a constitutional lawyer or something buddy like that would say the same privacy rules apply whether it's through technology or carrier pigeon, but I, I still think it's probably time to, to, to update our laws. <laughs>
3: yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think Ron is spot on. This is a very difficult one to sit here and noodle, and, and both parties are probably right to some degree. I do think Apple. There's no question to me that Tim Cook is absolutely taking the right step here uh, in regard to the business itself. I mean, Apple, beyond the fact that they make most of their money from their iPhones, uh, protecting that brand is going to be paramount here, and really getting out there and taking a stance in in what they really believe in in, and what really matters to them. And what Tim Cook has done is, he's gotten out there and he said, listen, above all, we care about our customers. Our customers come first. Obviously, we care about national security Interests like that. However, we need to go through the proper legal channels here. And I think, you know, like Ron said, I mean, each each party involved here, they're gonna do what they need to do. And I think that as long as they allow this process to play out, it will certainly be political. But as long as they allow it to play out via the judicial system, which is most certainly will go, then at least if Apple is required to do something here by law you can't go back on the message, the stance that they've already taken. And I think that customers, you know, believers in Apple, Apple enthusiasts, investors, I think they'll all uh, remember that. And
2: Apple's not out in front by themselves, Maddie. I mean, yes, they're out in front, but you look at companies like Google and Facebook, and they are absolutely backing Apple on this one.
4: Right. And I understand that. I mean, we're dealing with companies that have tremendous amount of our own personal data, either on servers or on phones. And so, there's the idea that if I'm a customer of these companies, I want to have some, you know, some security in what I'm doing online or where I'm going. I mean, people can hack my phone. I have nothing on my phone for <laughs> a But I wonder if, to Ron's point about coming up with a solution, I wonder if it's, it comes down to really ownership here. I mean, I have ownership of my phone, so I don't want anyone to hack my phone. I wouldn't mind if they did. But you know, in this case, we do have the federal government is in possession of this phone, and so in a way, it's they're asking, hey, Apple, can you help us hack our own phone? And I, I wonder if there's just a way, a legal way, to make that happen without sort of jeopardizing the whole everyone's everyone else's phones or everyone else who owns you know their own personal
2: data if this in fact goes all the way to the Supreme Court we're talking about a process that will take years not months or weeks and so th- a lot remains to be played out here but let's bring it back to the business what if anything do you think this will do to either iPhone sales because certainly uh, the the unspoken advertisement here is that iPhones security is top-notch um, what if anything does this do to Apple's brand? I don't think it has m- much effect at all
0: because if if Apple is forced to comply, that means theoretically all cell phone companies would be forced to comply, and they would all be in the same boat. I know from my perspective, either way this goes, it won't make me give up my iPhone. It won't make me not get the new one when it comes out. Um, I'm going to stick with it regardless.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think that's right. I mean, uh, you know, Apple. Is, is as we know is is a big part of the smartphone market here domestically speaking. But when we look at it globally speaking, I mean, Android devices have eighty five percent of the market share out there. And as a matter of fact, they're picking up share. So Apple actually is under pressure here. Um, again, I think that all goes back to the importance here and how Tim Cook reacted from the very beginning here. It would have been easy to jump the gun and say, "Oh, we're in the interest of national security, we're going to do this." Instead, cooler heads prevailed. I think they're playing this out the right way. And I think that regardless of what happens here down the line, you know, it's going to be something that ultimately is out of their control and the brand. Will have been protected.
0: And at only 10 times earnings, I think it's a really nice buy right now. <laughs> All right, let's
2: get to some of the week's earnings
3: reports. Walmart's fourth quarter
2: profits came in higher than expected, but revenue was light. And the stock taking a hit this week, Maddie.
4: Yes, uh, you know revenue was up just two point two percent, which you know it, it's not exactly they're not exactly as Ron would say firing on all cylinders <laughs> at Walmart. Uh, really, the the story here for me is about the e-commerce sales. Uh, you know, up just eight percent in the fourth quarter, and if you look at overall e-commerce sales uh, in the holiday quarter, they were fourteen percent. So you know, Walmart's really falling behind. We know what Amazon did in the latest quarter, which is up twenty four percent on our North American sales. So. For me, it's about Walmart being many days late, and unfortunately, many many billions of dollars short when it comes to their e-commerce strategy. And I, I just don't see them being so far behind the game now that they're ever going to be able to catch up. And then you have, of course, on the the, the larger business, stores are closing, the international expansion is not working out in a lot of areas as planned. Um, so there's just not a lot to get excited about Walmart. And you know, the, the stock is admittedly cheap. They raised their dividend again. Uh, still, i don't I don't see them being a market leader long term.
2: They have been upfront about the fact that they are investing in their employees with higher wages and they are investing in their e-commerce platform. But to your point, you look at the trend over the last two years of how, e-commerce growth has just methodically flowing, and th- they got to turn that around by the end of this year.
4: Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at their 8% growth in the last quarter, they, they started the year, year-over-year growth around 16%, so that's a sharp deceleration. And so, if that trend continues, you have to wonder,
2: really, are they ever going to gain meaningful market share in e-commerce? It doesn't sound like it. Big week for the Priceline Group. Fourth quarter profits came in higher than expected, and they issued some upbeat guidance for the current <laughs> quarter. Shares up more than seventeen percent this week. That's sure, a big
3: move for a stock like that. <laughs> hey, I mean, Airbnb is getting all of the attention here uh, lately, <laughs> but I think this this release from Priceline it was their shot across the bow. They're saying, "Hey, we're doing just fine over here," and, and all of the numbers uh, lead us to believe that is the case. Uh, bro- gross profit was up twenty three percent, excluding currency effects. And when we look at room nights booked, which is a good indicator of demand. Globally, room nights booked in the quarter were up 27 percent over the same quarter last year. Now we know that Booking.com is the big growth engine behind here. They have more than 850,000 hotels underneath their umbrella now. Uh, just recently signed up with TripAdvisor to start uh, bringing more of that inventory to their platform, and and they were talking about some some good uh, some good brand exposure there as well. So it's interesting. We've seen. Booking.com and Priceline really start focusing more and more on the business customer, which represents about 20% of their business now. And I think that's important, because I think that's a demographic that is less likely to go the route of an Airbnb, because like it or not, I think Airbnb is here to stay. Airbnb is doing very well, and I think they're doing very well for a reason, particularly as younger generations come up in this sort of sharing economy. It prevents or it presents a, a nice, attractive uh, alternative. But I think it's also going to make uh, hotel operators step up their game in order to keep their business going. I think the consumers ultimately win here. Um, and I think that Priceline and Booking.com are in a wonderful spot as being the go-to resource where all of these hotels want to list their inventory. This is a stock that trades. and One share
2: goes for more than $1,250. Yeah, How much of the interest in this stock um has to do with the fact that it does have that high high price tag and so for a lot of investors they're just going to stay away it, it in in a weird way it sort of artificially depresses demand for the stock
3: it absolutely could i mean it, it is going to keep a number of investors from even considering it because we get that question all the time: whether it's a stock split or not. You got to remember, it's the same size pizza; it's just the amount of pieces, right? It's the number of pieces it's cut into. And I, and I, I wouldn't be surprised at some point to see Priceline split the stock, given where it's gotten. Uh, but by the same token, this is a management team that thinks very long term. They would rather have investors in the company versus traders. You see other businesses like Marquel, Berkshire Hathaway, to a degree, play that same game. And and so uh, I think they're okay. You know, just growing that that long uh, sort of patient. uh, shareholder base.
2: Shares of NVIDIA up more than 10% on Thursday after the graphics chipmaker showed some nice profit and revenue growth in the fourth quarter. And that really puts the bow on a a good 2015 for them. very good 2015. Yeah, they beat expectations really across the board.
4: Uh, You know, NVIDIA's lucky in the sense that they're really on the forefront of some very exciting trends. If you look at virtual you know, NVIDIA is famous for its graphics chips. Uh, Virtual reality, we know, is there's a lot of excitement there. And you can imagine that NVIDIA's uh, chips are going to be sort of powering a lot of the the high-end video rendering that's happening. Uh, in virtual reality, and of course, in the automotive side, um, you know, autonomous driving—they're in the, the Tesla Model S and Tesla Model X. They power the panels and, and uh, a lot of the video displays. Uh, but they're also uh, driving the technology towards autonomous driving. Revenue in that segment was up 68% uh, year over year. So. I, I'm not generally a fan of chip companies. I think they, they play on a very poor part of the value chain. But now and then, you'll find a company like NVIDIA, which is really just positioned in all the right places, and I think NVIDIA is one that,
2: that is. We have seen chip companies, smaller players, who are heavily levered to one single company. Apple comes to mind. Uh, is Nvidia pretty well diversified in terms of who they're working with?
4: They are well diversified. I mean, so they, you know, you, you do have uh, certain companies like Dell, for example, which has which has been a big customer in the past. But really, they've diversified their business enough. I mean, between supercomputers, autonomous driving, Internet of Things, which they have applications for, of course, video
2: gaming, um, they're in a lot of different places. So very well diversified. Coming up, we're talking retail, beer, and the sexy world of farm equipment. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Not a happy holiday for J.W. Nordstrom. Fourth quarter sales up just 4%. Had to do a lot of discounting, Ron, and that is not something. I don't think that's the first thing people think about when they think about Nordstrom.
0: No, I know, and it is a tough business, as you say. Comp sales just up one percent, um, very lackluster performance. The strength continues to come from their online business. I guess not shockingly, that's where everyone's strength seems to be coming from. That business was up eleven percent for the quarter, and their discount stores, not the business, not the main stores that did some discounting, but their actual discount stores, uh, Rack and Hot Look, up twelve percent. So, those businesses were quite strong. Um, the bigger stores, not so much. 2016 guidance is weak. It looks like um, department stores across the board are going to continue to struggle. Um, gas is cheap, but people don't seem to want to be uh, headed to the malls t- to buy stuff. So, th- that'll be a challenge for companies like Nordstrom.
2: Historically, is Nordstrom good with inventory management? Because it seems like at least part of the story with this holiday quarter was struggling with inventory. I think. Typically, they're
0: quite strong. with it. Every now and then, there's a stumble. Retail is a tough, tough business. Sometimes, you just have to put things on promotion to blow that inventory out. You really have no choice. But, historically, yes, they're quite strong. Is it hot, or is it hot? It's hot, hot.
3: I think Hot. It's, I think it's both. It's, uh, is it is it is it interchangeable? I mean, I'm no fashionista. Don't get me wrong. I'm just don't sell yourself short, man. Hey. I think if it's French, so it depends if you're
0: saying it with a French accent or an Hout. or American accent. Yeah,
2: let's not go the French accent route. <laughs> Boston Beer Company's fourth quarter profits came in higher than expected, but it was also the fourth quarter in a row that overall sales fell, and the stock taking a hit this week. Jason,
3: Chris, these earnings are making me thirsty. <laughs> uh, I. You know, to me, okay, I think that the, I think the way to look at Boston Beer, I think this is a very good comparable to this, is uh, when we look at restaurants. You know, when we look at restaurants and we focus on those comp numbers, with Boston Beer, their comp numbers uh, are depletions, and so we see that metric uh, released quarter in and quarter at. and that's just sales from the distribute uh, the distributors to the retailers. And so, for the longest time, the the growth story has has really gained traction and depletions have continued to do very well. That's sort of uh, starting to edge the other way now. And you know, we talk about some businesses, uh, being victims of their own success. I mean, it could be argued that to a degree here, uh, they are also victims of a far more competitive craft beer industry than was even five years ago. Uh, with that said, I, I still think there is a, a lot of reason to be optimistic about the business, about where they're going. They'll continue to bring new brands and new concepts into their portfolio of offerings. Uh, they are coming up. On lapping a very tough comp with the cider category, which traditionally has done very well for them as well, so they're not sitting still. They're bringing new products to market. I think the nitro offering that they just brought was really uh, pretty interesting. I've tried the nitro coffee stout; can't recommend it highly enough, guys.
2: Thanks Get for doing shot. that
3: research. Right. the uh, The rebel grapefruit IPA, another good one, not <laughs> bad at all. So uh, all in all, I think this is a very, very high quality business, and I think it's a testament really to the price that we paid for it when we added it to MDP. We we got it at a great price, and, um, and Jason still-
4: definitely jumped at the research opportunity. <laughs> For, for <laughs> still, very, I, I enthusiastic. The whole very,
3: very enthusiastic about the five-year outlook for this company.
2: Way to go, the extra mile. Mm-hmm. Specialty insurer Markel, not the flashiest company in the world, but fourth-quarter results were solid once again, and uh, capping another strong year for uh, them.
4: Definitely a strong year. You know, it's been a tough year to be an insurance company. It's been a tough several years, actually. You know, you got very competitive pricing, low interest rates. Uh, but yeah, but Markel turned it a good year. You know, they they're not growing premiums in all their insurance segments, and that's partly because they're pulling back on a lot of their lines, a lot of property and casualty lines, that they've just become unprofitable. And we like Markel doing that because it shows that they're disciplined. And so, if you look at their combined ratio, which is a a measure of profitability in the insurance business, anything below 100% means insurance companies are profitable. And Markel turned in a ratio of 89% in 2015. That's down from 96%. In 2014, Uh, so that's great. So definitely making money on the insurance side. On the investment side, not so great of a year. The equity portfolio was down 2.9 percent, but that was offset by gains on the fixed income side. So overall, pretty flat there. Uh, Really exciting though is the Markel Ventures business, which is if think of it's kind of like Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio businesses. Markel's got a private equity sleeve of their business where they buy uh, majority stakes or whole positions in small businesses. Uh, Markel Ventures revenue hit one billion for the first time. In 2015, and pre-tax profits rising to 90 million. So you have a. You, we we like to call Markel the baby Berkshire, and I think that's that's very apt in this case. They had a great year, very disciplined, solid investing uh, track record, uh, and this Markel Ventures business is, is very it's really taking off.
3: Yeah, you know we talked about Berkshire Hathaway and and Kinder Morgan. I thought it was also interesting. I saw in Markel's 13F uh, in their investment portfolio, they just added shares of Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook. So, it looks like Tom Gaynor is channeling his inner fool. Yeah, he never shy,
4: <laughs> He doesn't shy away from those technology names that Buffett does. So, and I think, I have to admit, essentially with Amazon, which we recently added to, I think that's a, that's a good buy.
2: Deere & Company is the world's largest maker of farm equipment, and it just got a little smaller. First quarter profits came in higher than expected, but shares falling. After the company said it expects 2016 to be, quote, challenging. Never like to hear that word, Ron. <laughs> it's tough
0: out there, Chris. Weak commodity prices really hurting businesses, industrial businesses. Um like deer, and um, you know the sales numbers reflect that, down 13 percent um, in both their Agricultural businesses Week and their Construction businesses Week. Uh, it's interesting, I, I was talking to my colleague Jeff Fisher this morning, who's actually short deer, and we were talking about how one man' short could potentially be another man's value investment, and it's really kind of all about the timing and when you <laughs> choose to get in. but deer at only 10 times earnings, depressed earnings, at some point
2: the cycle's going to turn, and that's going to be a good stock to own. Let's bring in our man Steve Brodo from the other side of the glass. Uh, Steve we've got less than a minute. I'm just curious. You ever drive a John Deere tractor? you Ever like drive some big farm equipment? Uh, no. I
0: did growing up. We had a, a large backyard, and we had a, a deer tractor. I what? did grow
3: up in Illinois, but no, we had a we had a small tractor, but it was not a big. One. I've
4: always wanted one of the riding lawnmowers. You know, it was awesome. I mean, I never had I, a yard before
2: I learned to
0: drive. That's what I would uh, do. Yeah, it was great.
2: Steve, what's the biggest vehicle you've ever driven?
3: Uh, a 1978 Ford LTD. That was very, very large. It was the size of a tanker.
2: Still just four wheels on that vehicle, though, right?
3: Just four wheels. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, we are heading to the boardroom with author Jeff Graham. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money.
3: Money, money makes the world.
2: Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. With activist shareholders like Carl Icahn, Dan Loeb, and others constantly making headlines, investors are forgiven for thinking that this is a relatively new phenomenon. But in fact, this type of endeavor dates back to the 1920s, and it is a history wonderfully brought to life by Jeff Graham in his brand new book, Dear Chairman, Boardman Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. Jeff joins me now on the phone. Jeff, thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: I think a lot of people hear the phrase corporate governance, and then they start to doze off. But some of the battles that you illustrate in your book are just flat-out entertaining. You've organized the book around eight different shareholder letters, and I want to spot you up with a couple and have you walk me through them and, and what they mean for investors. And let's start with Warren Buffett. 1964. He sends a letter to the CEO of American Express, and the subtitle of this chapter is the Great Salad Oil Swindle.
1: It's an interesting case because actually Buffett is on the other side from the activists. You know, so so um, American Express had been defrauded in the Great Swindle, and uh, the company had guaranteed uh, the inventory of of a swindler who had. Uh, thousands or millions of gallons of soybean oil that he actually you know they were just uh, seawater and American Express um, you know um, had guaranteed the existence of the soybean oil and I was on the hook and it had you know a hundred million dollars of liabilities and at that point that was enough to sink the company and um, they ultimately arranged a deal with its claimants that would allow the company to survive uh, you know, but that compensated the claimants for, you know, the liabilities, and um, and incredibly, the shareholders of American Express or a few shareholders decided, oh, this is a bad idea. You know, they don't have to do this, and uh, they protested the company paying their claimants, and Buffett intervened to say, hey, look, I'm a you know I'm a long-term shareholder here. This is the right thing to do, and I'll testify on your behalf, and you know, it was a turning point. In Buffett's career, for uh, for several reasons, like the first is he had historically been a little bit of an activist himself, um, investing in these you know kind of declining uh, companies that had lots of cash, but you know were what he called uh, cigar butts, where you pick the cigar butt off the off the ground because it's a cheap stock and you can get a free puff. And with American Express, he found a, like a really good business, and he um, intervened. Uh, uh, not to compel them to pay out their cash but you know to kind of or or to pay out their cash to shareholders but uh you know to do the right thing and to pay you know to pay claimants
2: why do you think buffett is not more of an activist and it's something that that some people have criticized him for i guess you know recently when with coca-cola and executive compensation but for as much power as he has arguably as much, if not more power than any investor out there, he really doesn't throw his weight around in the way that, say, a Carl Icahn does. And I'm just wondering, as someone who has gone to Berkshire Hathaway meetings, has studied Warren Buffett, why do you think he is not more of an in-your-face activist?
1: Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's uh, there's a lot of opinions out there about this. And I think there are people that, you know, that that believe, oh, it's a, it's a calculated ploy to, to be the nice guy and to garnish his, his public image. But, you know, I honestly think that activism, to be a good activist, you know, there's a dispositional element. Like, you have to like, you know, being aggressive. You have to be extremely confident that you're always right. And, um, and I just think, and, you know, this is just an opinion, but I just think it's, it's not his thing, ultimately that it's not his style, that that he doesn't enjoy it.
2: One of the other letters that you highlight, and maybe this is appropriate given that we're in an election year, because I think for a a lot of people, they hear the name Ross Perot, and they think back to when he launched an independent bid for the presidency in 1992. But he was a businessman for a very long time and a very successful one. Uh, Walk me through his letter to Roger Smith, the head of General Motors in the
1: 1980s? Sure. I mean, it's it's probably the best uh, letter in the book. Um, so Ross Perot had sold his company, EDS, to GM in the 1980s. And, um, you know, the idea for GM at the time was uh, Perot was, you know, a legendary businessman. He got the most out of his people, and, and GM was... And uh, I'm a bureaucratic uh, company that was uh, having a hard time competing with the Japanese. And so their idea was to bring in Perot, uh, put him on the board, and to kind of infuse the GM culture with like the magic of, of Ross Perot. And, and of course, that didn't work. And he immediately began to, um, to conflict with this, this CEO and chairman of GM, um, a man named Roger Smith. And the letter uh, that's included um, in the appendix of uh, uh, um, of the book is kind of the breaking point in their relationship. A, um, a GM um, has decided to buy Hughes Aircraft, and Perot wrote a four-page angry letter to Smith explaining that it was a bad idea to do this deal, and. Uh, kind of uh, pointing out all the flaws in Smith's long-term strategy. And it's a really remarkable letter. It's basically in, in, in all bullet points, and he pulls no punches.
2: And for anyone who has heard Ross Perot speak or even Dana Carvey's impression of Ross Perot on Saturday Night Live, it's really easy to hear that distinctive voice with those bullet points. And uh, of any of the letters... It is, I, I don't want to say it's confrontational or rude in any way, but it is certainly the most pointed. He's just incredibly yeah. direct. There's, there's no misreading yeah. that.
1: I mean, I would say it's confrontational. It's not rude. It's funny. I, you know, I tried to get uh, the guy that narrated the audiobook to do a Ross Perot impression when he reads that letter, <laughs> but, but he didn't want to do it.
2: You couldn't bring in Dana Carvey just on a consult? He could probably just phone <laughs> that one in.
1: I you know I forgot about I forgot about uh the fact that Dana Carvey existed that was a you know that was an oversight uh, but that, it is that I mean, doesn't
2: speak well for Dana Carvey's career
1: <laughs> but that whole case I mean uh GM uh, pretty much uh, went from the best company in the country to the worst company that anyone had ever seen in a matter of 20 to 30 years and it's a real um it kind of explains the fine line that you have between good corporate governance and bad corporate governance and how on the one like on the one side you had a company that was incredibly well run that played a key role in uh, in the in the success of the united states in world war ii and on the other side you um, had a company that um you know that manufactured like the one card death machine uh you know, talked about in the Nader book that, you know, pretty much became, um, you know, the example of bureaucratic, you know, bad corporation. And the fact that that could happen in in 20 years, you know, kind of highlights how important a governance is and, and how quickly it can go badly.
2: You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Jeff Graham. His new book is Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. I want to lean on your expertise as an investor for a few moments before we wrap up. Uh, I read an interview where you said recently, the bitter truth is that many public companies are horribly run and shareholders are often treated terribly. That struck me as as pretty strong, and I, I immediately uh, and rather selfishly went to my own portfolio and looked at the 15 or so companies that I owned and thought, well, wait a minute, I don't feel like I'm being terribly treated by these companies. Are what are one or two of the ways that you think the average public company is mistreating shareholders?
1: Well, I think you know the main thing is that you have a, a, a system of where the management essentially chooses the board of directors. And the board of, of, director, of directors is uh, supposed to answer to the shareholders. The truth is, you know, for lots of boards, you know, there's a policy that they're not even supposed to talk to shareholders, and so there's a friction there that this uh, that the system uh, uh, um, uh, creates that is counter to the whole point of the structure, and you know, that's the hard thing with governance, and. The truth of the matter is that incentives are very Im- important in how people act, and the shareholders, and the board of directors, and and the CEO of the company, are rarely going to be perfectly aligned. And you know, in this book, I don't come down that hard. Um, i on management teams. I, you know, I pretty much um, I take these 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 um, eight examples to explain how the system works. To to show you examples of bad activism and good activism of bad boards and, and good boards, but I definitely have seen in my career as an investor a lot of bad oversight and just a lot of complacent boards. And it's kind of a fact of life in investing, especially in, um, in smaller companies. If you invest in the microcap space, you know, when you find a cheap stock, it's usually because there's a governance issue with it. You know, that is usually the cause of the undervaluation.
2: I know you're a value investor, but to the extent that you look to management, when you are making investment decisions, what do you look for when you're evaluating the people that are running a company?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, because I'm a finance guy, I'm not that great at being able to tell if they're good operators, um, because it's like it's easy to seem like a good operator. <laughs> Um, if you know your business, it's hard for a financial investor you know, like myself to be able to tell. And so the main thing I focus on is their capital allocation. And um, a public company or any company can uh, uh, create or destroy a lot of value uh, depending on the way that they spend the cash flow that their business uh, generates. And so that's the thing that I focus on are do they understand their capital allocation choices? Do they have a reason for doing the, the things that they're doing with the, the cash? And um, you know, I don't expect perfection. I, I mean I have investments in a couple companies where I love the management, I think they're they're like they're great operators, and their allocation of their cash is pretty good. <laughs> and, you know, that can be good enough. But um you know, But in general, if you allocate extremely well, then it creates a tremendous amount of shareholder value.
2: Over the last six months, we've seen a lot of companies across a pretty broad range of industries where the share price has been cut 20%, 40%, sometimes even more. How do you differentiate between a stock that is a value play and a stock that's a value trap?
1: Yeah, I mean that's like the hardest thing. I, I mean, I, I mean, I think of, of the best example of a value trap. Uh, you know, in a in, in a value trap, there is value that, like in the company, but you're not gonna, uh, you know, but you're not gonna realize it because of the way the company is run. And so, to me, a value trap means bad oversight and bad governance. And that's the reason that, that activism exists is to take advantage of that uh, that dynamic.
2: Last question, and then I'll let you go. This is your first book. What do you know now about writing a book that you didn't know when you started?
1: Um, you know, I thought the whole process is—it's just—it requires you to it's like to work every day, and you have to commit, you know, four to five hours every day to write. So I knew that it was going to be miserable. I knew that I didn't um, have time to do it. But the depth of the misery, I didn't completely appreciate. But then there's this thing, like the moment that it's over, it's like a euphoric, you know, like, whoa, this is incredible. Like, I think that the finished product is very good. And so it seduces you into thinking, man, maybe I should do another. When really, it was brutally you know, miserable when it was happening.
2: I think The Depths of Misery is a good title for your next book. Charles Schwab called this required reading for any investor. The book is Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. It is on sale next week, but pre-orders on Amazon already have it climbing up the business bestseller charts. Jeff Graham, thanks for being here. Thanks a lot for having me, Chris. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. money As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio once again, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Guys, two things before we get to the stocks on our radar with our man, Steve Broido. First, Joining Steve on the other side of the glass this week, special guest Tony Gonzalez Woo! coming in from Florida, right. hey. longtime hey. listener and member of several different Motley Fool investing services. Former in tight end for Ken-
4: the Chiefs, the Falcons. A different
2: Tony <laughs> oh, Gonzalez. Oh, okay, well, di- it, you know that one's retired. This one's still, still hard, kicking, still kicking and hard at work. Uh, second, no word yet if the chocolate-covered fries that McDonald's has been testing in Japan are coming to America, but. Reports this week that McDonald's will be testing the Chicken McGriddle, a fried chicken patty between two maple syrup-infused pancake buns. They will be testing this at 11 locations in central Ohio. No, 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 no. No, you're not interested. <laughs> on the Road Twitter, trip? Road on, the, trip? on the
0: Twitter, I said just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs>
2: I, I don't know. I think I, if this were a stock, I think I would, I would buy a couple of shares, Jason. Un-
3: unscientific survey here. We were talking to Mac before taping. I mean, do you go? Would you go with this chicken McGriddle, or do you go Burger King hot dog?
4: I, I mean, just like Ron, I like the fact that Ron called Twitter the Twitter.
2: The Twitter. I, I, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, you know what? I'm going to put the call out to any of our dozens of listeners who happen to be in the Central Ohio area or. Anyone willing to make a road trip <laughs> to central Ohio? <laughs> yes. Dr- drop us an email, radio at fool.com. We want some on the ground research of the chicken McGriddle. radio at fool.com. Drop us an email. Let's get to the stocks on our radar, and Steve Boyd will hit you with a question. Ron Gross, what are you looking at this week? So, building on the theme we just discussed with deer, I'm looking at Heister
0: Yale. H-Y is the symbol. They're a large manufacturer of forklifts. So, as with deer, we're at a tough point in the cycle right now. 2016 actually doesn't look much better, but that's where value investors look for value. Uh, company is solidly profitable even during this tough time. Very strong balance sheet. Only six times EBITDA. P-E ratio of 12. Stock looks cheap. Just got to be patient. Steve, question about Heister Yale?
3: Yeah, what's your favorite feature about their (laughs)
0: forklifts? I like the vertical up and then it can go down as well. (laughs)
2: You know, if you don't have that, then you're not really a forklift. And they make some great ball bearings, don't they? It's
3: all ball bearings.
2: Uh, Jason Moser, what are you looking at?
3: Uh, Yeah, building on another theme, Matty was talking about e-commerce earlier. uh, Looking at Wayfair, ticker W, uh, we have it on the watch list in MDP. Their earnings uh, will come out next week. This is one we've seen some very strong opinions on both sides of the coin there uh, in regard to this business and sort of the sustainability of the model. But you know, in short, they sell. Home furnishings online, and, and so they're just really taking advantage of that e-commerce opportunity out there. and Everything really depends for them on the percentage of orders from repeat customers, because they've already invested to get those customers and that really does help their bottom line. Uh, but we'll will definitely be keeping an eye on the uh, earnings release next week and, and seeing if it needs to stay on the watch list, go in the portfolio, or if uh, we need to kick it to the curb. Steve, question about Wayfair. How do they handle returns? It seems kind of complicated. If you order a king size bed, it doesn't work <laughs> out. No big deal. It's just two thousand pounds. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be a pretty tough one. But but fortunately for the consumer, the returns of the returns, you just you send it back. They're the ones that are going to deal with that on the uh, on the cost side of it. But uh, yeah, I imagine I imagine a, a couch presents a. Some challenges.
2: Maddie?
4: One I haven't talked about in a while, uh B of I Holding, ticker B O F I is the holding company of Bank of Internet, which is a online only bank, small cap bank. Uh, you know, they had they're This is a bank that's come under a lot of scrutiny uh, over the past six months to a year. A lot of short attacks out there, most of it unfounded. Uh, But if you look at the latest results, uh, net income up 40%, uh, assets and deposit base growing in excess of 30%. And it trades for 1.5 times book value, which is about half the multiple it was trading for about a year ago. So, it's one I'm starting to take another look at. I think there's still some clouds out there, but uh, it's it's back on my radar.
3: Steve? What can a uh, bank of the internet do that a bricks and mortar bank cannot?
4: Well, the cost structure is obviously much, much better, and so they can they can give you better terms on loans and deposits deposit
2: rates based on the fact that their cost structure is much lower. Bank of Internet, Wayfair, Heister Yale. You got one you want to add to your watch list, Steve?
3: Kind of feel bad for Ron, so I'll go with this. <laughs> weird what a company. guy.
2: Ron Gross, <laughs> not, a, not above sympathy. All right, Ron Gross, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Go to podcasts.fool.com. You can check out past episodes of Motley Fool Money, and you can check out all of the free podcasts from the Motley Fool that's podcast.fool.com. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Freer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.